Hi, I'm Lester Wagener, and you're listening to the From Arfrasi podcast, a short series about writing that ties in with From Arfrasi 2019, an anthology of prose and poetry. In each episode, we talk with an author whose work is published in the anthology and will listen to the story or poems. This double episode features both Magali Roman and Merel de Beer. I thought for a long time, I was like, this is going to be too whack. I don't think we can do this. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I was initially like immediately very enthusiastic because I had also seen Banner's Match. Magali is the editor-in-chief and Merel is the executive editor of this year's From Arthur Seed Anthology. We discuss what it means to create an anthology and dive into what makes this one so special. We also talk about their stories of Phineum and From the Ceiling. Enjoy. Welcome, Meryl and Magali. Hi. Hi. Do you maybe want to introduce yourself first? Yeah, love to. <laughs> uh, I'm Magali Roman. Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief of From Arthur's Seat this year. And I also am a fiction writer. I contributed the story Athenaeum to this publication. And I am Neil DeBeer. I am the executive editor of this year's um, edition of From Arthur's Seat. And I'm also a fiction writer. And I contributed the story from the ceiling. Perfect. Perfect. The reason why you're both here is because you have done a marvelous job at making this thing happen as either executive editor and editor-in-chief. Uh, and the idea of this podcast is obviously to give a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of creating this anthology? Where did it start and how did it progress? Sure. Um, so the I mean, this is a project that we've been doing in the department for, like, I think the past four years or so. So the process itself is quite uh, basic. Uh, we basically gather a team uh, under, uh, you know, our direction. We have fiction and poetry editors. Uh, we have people doing social media, uh, web, audio, like you. Oh, that's a recent addition. Um, so once we have our team figured out, we schedule out uh, when we want people to submit their stories. People submit their stories or poems. Um, and then we go through a period of editing all of them. The period is about two weeks uh, with fiction and poetry editors. Uh, and then I come in at the last bit of it and just oversee the whole thing. We proofread. Um, then we get together with design and we you know, come up with ideas for the cover, typeset the full thing, and send it to the printers. It's a very long process, <laughs> um, but it helps a lot to have um, a team just kind of pulling through it together. I don't think I could have been able to do it on my own, honestly. Um, if, because I think like I, <laughs> I think I worked a lot <laughs> just for this one part of the, the project. So um, I think it's definitely a huge team effort. Um, and we've been really lucky that this year we have so many talented people willing to help out and volunteer for this publication. Mm -hmm. um, Elspeth, for example, who you talked to earlier, um, she has a BA in graphic design, which is super helpful because we were able to just, you know, pull someone from our team to do the cover for us rather than have to, you know, outsource it to somebody else. Obviously, you're able to do audio for us um, rather than us having to figure out <laughs> like GarageBand or whatever <laughs> on our own. Fortunately, so. we're not using GarageBand. Yeah, <laughs> so, so that's been really, it's been really lucky, I think, uh, mm. this year. How long did it take in, in, in total from start to finish? I don't know, when did we start? When did we have our first meeting? November, um, maybe? I think we had it in oct October, actually. So from October, we started planning. Mm -hmm. But you know, most of the activity was done in 
January because that's book, when yeah. the stories uh, were due. Yeah, and yeah, then the book we had our in, in deadline May, in course. January, and then oh, right. a lot of stuff happened in that short period of time with all the editing. A lot of the team came in to edit, um, proofread. Well, that's you did that, and then it was kind of like. So that was, I think, a Probably. period of high activity and then slowed down again a little bit and then before the launch and obviously before sending it out to the yeah. publisher. Those were hectic few days. <laughs> so Yeah, it's about half a year, I suppose. But then, of course, you'd also have to take in consideration that all of the contributors, so the poets and uh, the writers, the prose writers, uh, have been told to write their stories beforehand. So yeah. they, of course, need time to write their stuff. Yeah, too. I think we sent that out in probably November. Yeah. So. yeah uh, so I think, I mean, the whole process from beginning to end, including everybody and, you know, factoring in time for people to write their stories and, I'm oh, sorry, I keep saying just stories, stories and poems, <laughs> submissions. Uh, sorry, I'm a fiction writer, so it's my default. Um, is I mean I would probably say it's like eight to nine months altogether. Yeah. It definitely feels like that long. <laughs> um, I mean, really fun, <laughs> of course, but it's definitely uh, a process we've been working on for a long time. When you look at a book, it doesn't feel like it takes as much time mm. as it does. And yeah, and uh, I think as a writer, it's been really interesting, and I think definitely really helpful to be on the other side of that. Exactly, and to see how much work goes into it, and. Yeah. Um, because I think you don't always consider that when you're just mm. writing a story and submitting it. Um, but having experienced that, it's like, okay, I, I get that part of the yeah. industry too now. When it comes to the industry, every little part has a specific job attached to it generally, mm -hmm. right? So now, for example, we had Elspeth do both design and typesetting while that would be split yeah. between like two or three people in some other cases, I, I reckon. Yeah. At least as editor-in-chief, I really wanted to run this as professionally as possible. So I have a little bit of experience in publishing in the sense that I, I had an internship in New York like when I graduated uh, my undergrad. And I had like all of these ideas that I was going to go into publishing. And then I went to New York and I got tired of it. So I <laughs> went somewhere else and did something else. Mm -hmm. But um, I remember just the structure of it and how much easier it was when everybody had you know, something that they could contribute, uh, something that was creative, but also uh, super helpful to us moving this project forward. So I try, I really tried to structure our team and just all of our roles as closely as they would be in real life if this was a real publishing company. And that was super helpful because I think it made the whole uh, project move forward pretty quickly, even though, I mean, as we've just said, it's kind of a long period, but it, I kept having people come up to me during class and being like, oh, so how's it going? You must be so busy. You must be like, you know, freaking out about all the work. And I'm like, actually, it's been going really well because everybody has been, you know, they know what their job is and they're doing it um, very, so, and they're, you know, being very supportive and helpful of each other. Yeah, I, I think that was part of what made this project so successful. We were, uh, we tried to be organized from the beginning mm -hmm. and very clear about our objectives, even as we uh, were growing this anthology from something that it has been for the past four years into something new. Yeah. Because this is the fourth anthology, of course. So there is already a history of this anthology created by students of the University of Edinburgh. Uh, what did you try to do different this time? So we actually have a concept uh, <laughs> going throughout this whole anthology. In the past, um, From Arthur's Seat has really, it doesn't have a theme or anything. We don't ask anybody to write about uh, any particular uh, topic. We don't necessarily want you to write about Scotland or from Arthur's seat, even though that's in the uh, 
in the title of it, the only uh, things we have, the only requirements we have is a word count and uh, I mean, I think that's it, a, a deadline really. So people can get as wacky as they want to. The idea is that you should feel free to publish whatever you want to publish mm -hmm. because so much of you know getting published is outside of our control. So And sometimes when you do write something wonderful, it's, it's maybe it's a little ahead of its time or it's a little wacky for some people. So we wanted everybody to have the chance to really like just write whatever they want um, and get it out into the world. So uh, with that, that being said, I love to make extra work for myself mm -hmm. <laughs> in the sense that I uh, I started reading uh, through the submissions and thinking like, okay, but how are we going to make this year's volume like even more exciting and, and fun and, and, you know, really interesting to read through. And I was also asking myself, you know, what is an anthology? Like what is, what is the purpose of an anthology if it doesn't have a theme and if it doesn't have a particular um, mission we're trying to accomplish? Um, so I didn't want it to be just like a random collection of stuff that people just hand in and, you know, your, your parents or your friends come to the launch, they like pick up the book, they read only your story, or they, let's say they only like to read poetry, they only read poetry and they're like, mm. okay, well, that's that great job, but, you know, I'm not going to keep reading this book. Another part of uh, the process that jumped out at me when I was reading through the submissions was how many of them seemed to be uh, written from a particular point of view that was shared by somebody else and what I mean by that is that there were a lot of stories that felt like they could take place in the same universe or um, they tackled topics that another writer had picked up or another poet had uh, you know discussed in their poetry so I started actually seeing a lot of links in between stories that had which actually really surprised me because nobody that, that I knew of had you know sit, sitting down and um try to write a companion piece to somebody else's poem or story, but there were so many stories that were linked up. For example, James Alex's uh, The Immortal Science, mm -hmm. uh, it, fo it focuses on you know the death of a parent who is an artist. He's a little distanced from his sons. And that actually really matched with Angelo Castiglione's uh, father figure in his story of primary colors. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, of relative colors. Wow, it used to be of primary colors. Really? And I always Ooh. like call it of primary colors, but it's actually of relative colors, of relative colors. Um, so things like that. Um, I started realizing that if you, you know, I started, I kind of like sat down in my, in my room and I had this like crazy, uh, conspiracy <laughs> like uh, person uh, set up where I had all the stories and I started kind of like lining them up side by side and testing myself to see if my reaction to each story changed depending on which story I read uh, before and after. So if I put a poem about death after a poem about an abortion or something, was that going to make the first story more dramatic or that make the poem even more sad mm. or, or less sad or even ironic? So, But it isn't just that you uh, you ordered pieces in terms of themes, though, because, of course, when you look at stories on a conceptual level, there are just a limited number of themes that you can explore when you are uh, when you're going to write a story. In this case, it it felt a little bit different in the sense that they could actually, that it's also the contents and the characters maybe of the stories that uh, felt like they could live in the same world, right? And maybe the voice was similar. Sort of. Um, we did have a few themes that we identified ran through basically every story. So some of them were isolation, observation, um, narration. So, you know, somebody mm -hmm. telling a story. Um, we had a, a few others too. Yeah, so escapism as well. Escapism, yeah. Um, a lot of themes that felt very off our time. It made sense for people to want to write about um, 
these very complex uh, feelings. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you're right. I, I think like there was definitely, it wasn't just that some stories happened to match up. It, I really just noticed that um, there were there were definitely some ideas and feelings that people were saying in a crowd rather than right. just by they themselves. They were exploring a certain topic, but in a different way, maybe. Well, I think once we got to actually like working out how they were all going to fit together, we kind of started with the themes. Yeah. Like that was kind of like, all right, this could fit into that, that could yeah. fit into mm. that. But then how it actually, how we all kind of weave them together yeah. wasn't all based on theme. Yeah, because the, the first step, I reckon, would just be, like you said, just looking at themes that yeah. Are yeah. they have in common. So um, basically, as all of this was happening, <laughs> uh, the movie Bandersnatch came out <laughs> on Netflix. <laughs> and like everybody else, I was watching it. And I liked it. I was like, this is cool, great. I'm just going to go downstairs and make my food. And I was... Uh, just cooking with a friend and I was you know we were discussing the movie and I also had in my mind just you know the stories from uh, and poems from the anthology because I had just I mean it, it was uh, January I think so we were post submission time and editing time um, and we were just talking and then I just got this like you know when you get an idea it just sort of like lands in your head and like explodes your brain and you're like oh my god <laughs> like I have to tell you about this right now <laughs> so in my mind I just thought like oh my god what if we do like uh, choose your own adventure setup for this book in the sense that we can pair up a few stories together and rather than you reading one story or one poem and thinking like oh that's nice like mm -hmm. cool I'll move on to the next one um, you can actually use that story or poem as a starting point to uh, undergo a, like a, a different journey or an overarching uh, narrative thread uh, that actually becomes a larger story the more you read. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about this and I, <laughs> I called Meryl and I was like, Meryl, I have this crazy idea. What do you think? Is it great? Because I think I thought for a long time, I was like, this is going to be too whack. I don't think we can do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was like, um, I was initially like immediately very enthusiastic because I had also seen Bandersnatch <laughs> and I thought it was a really cool idea. But I thought like one thing that we do really have to watch out for is that people wrote the stories by themselves and mm -hmm. they shouldn't become something that they, that didn't, they didn't intend, intend to, to be yeah. uh, by putting them into a grand narrative. Like they should still be their own story and we should respect like the integrity of the story. Right. Um, so that is why, um, as you see it in the book, it's not, you kind of have to go on a little adventure, like you have to find, um, you have to find the pathways. They're mm -hmm. not just like laid out for you, like this is how it's gonna be. It just kind of offers you a different way of looking at yeah. it without yeah. taking the stories out of their own context. Exactly, and it's, it's in, when it comes to the book itself, the way it's published, it's, uh, it's not super in your face either. The no. stories really stand on their own. Yeah. Uh, and it just on uh, beneath, every story it has these different pathways right yeah. the different page numbers Just, that you um, can it's actually really funny how it all came about i think because yeah, it was, it was definitely like a very <laughs> collaborative effort yeah yes. definitely because um like we made the pathways and uh obviously elspeth who was our art director um we came to her with the plan and she, she did the entire design for interior exterior she came to us with a few ideas about how it might look and uh, one of them was the idea of the postcard and also maps mm -hmm. because like pathways, maps, that all ties in. So we were like, then how could we kind of like lay it out in the book? How can we 
how can we signpost each story so yeah. you know that it's going on to the next? Yeah. And mm. then it was kind of like, all right, well, how do you read a map? Well, you read a map by following the coordinates on the map. Um, so I went on this little Wikipedia into the rabbit hole of coordinates, and I know nothing about math <laughs> at all. Don't understand it. Um, and I went, I, I arrived on this page, which is like the Cartesian coordinate system, which is like the parentheses and then the two numbers. Big, um, big fan of that page. Yes, huge. <laughs> it's your <laughs> homepage thank you. now, that Wikipedia thank page. You, Descartes. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Descartes. Thank you, Descartes. Only understood. We considered, having, we considered having him for a bit on the cover, being like, there's a little choke towards you, but, uh, but maybe. we chose not to. It was to. a bit uh, yeah, <laughs> out of maybe context. Maybe a postcard. The postcard that, uh, that Elspeth designed was the better choice. Yes, better yeah, than Descartes. Signed face. by Descartes. So <laughs> Elspeth had like five, uh, five concept designs, and one of them was Descartes. Well, yes, <laughs> one of them was all about Descartes. Um, no, so um, so that's how kind of all, like we had this meeting at a pub, actually. We had, a, like, we had a lot oh, of Oh, it's all coming together. It's the like, best meeting in, in I mean, Scotland yeah, is I in mean, a pub, what of Where course. else are you going to have them? <laughs> exactly. You need some inspiration. Yes. When it, if it comes in the form of a pint, then that's great. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's how it all really came together with the maps. And then we'll use the coordinates to guide people through, because that's how you usually go through. Yeah. Coordinates. Go on a map. Um, Basically, the way that we structured it was, as you said, we wanted to make sure that, you know, it wasn't so obvious that we would say, like, turn to the next page or to page 71 for, you know, to follow this path, because we really wanted to just put choice in the hands of the reader. Um, so what we did after many meetings, <laughs> because we couldn't figure out how to how to do it without it sounding cheesy or like a little too obvious, um, is that if you buy this book, uh, and you turn to page eight, there is a section that's called uh, how to read this book. So that's where we explain sort of the concept behind it and mm. teach you really how to follow the coordinates. So essentially, the end of each story or poem is, you know, as Meryl said, has a set of coordinates in the end. So those coordinates consist of two numbers. The first number is the number of the path that that story belongs to. We have 10 paths altogether. They're outlined uh, in our table of instructions. A nice nod to uh, hopscotch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, right, so we have 10 paths and they range from, you know, uh, a narrator who's looking for a story to uh, a speaker who tries to preserve the image of a loved one, uh, a community under surveillance, a lot of really interesting ideas. So what you do is you pick a path, you can pick path number three, uh, and then you go to the first story, which is outlined in this table of instructions, let's say path number three is uh, page 156. You read the story on page 156, you get to the end, and in the end there'll be a coordinate with the first number being three, which is the number of your path, so you can make sure you're still on the right path. Mm -hmm. And then the next number, the coordinate, I guess it would be Y, <laughs> if it's X and Y, uh, would be the page number at which the succeeding story can be found. So with path three, the next, uh, the next story is page 31. So you would flip back to page 31 and read that story. And slowly you would just uh, build up towards the end. And then the final story or poem doesn't have a coordinate. And that's how you're meant to know that it's the end. We didn't want to put, you know, end in parentheses because some of these end in poems and that would just mess up the whole, exactly. <laughs> the whole <laughs> message. So that's, that's kind of a primer on how to read this. Uh, and I really have to give props to Meryl because she came up with this whole system. And I think it's really just the best way we could have done it. I think what makes this work well is also that uh, every story still stands by itself because the stories themselves, the way they're published in the book isn't ordered in any way really. Well, 
I don't know if you've ordered them in a way, but I didn't. I couldn't find any way they. Yeah, we. That's lot. what we really wanted to make sure is that, um, like the primary way of reading a book is still like the way you would read an anthology. Right. Um. So that all the stories are still their own thing. So the best ones mm -hmm. are still at the front. And the <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, the 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 reading of the path is kind of a secondary uh, way of reading it, mm -hmm. um, which I think makes a book interesting as in you can read it once and then you can read it another time in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how it can change your perspective on certain stories. Right. Um, and you might find things in it that you previously didn't see before. Um, and I think we had great stories to work with as well. Um, that does help. And yeah, I think I think it became something really special. Yeah, I think another good thing about it is that we incorporated, well, this system helps us incorporate poetry and fiction together in a way right. that is was previously not done. Um, our program is quite small, but it involves, you know, there's, you know, there's two concentrations you can take, you do poetry or fiction, and uh, they're mostly kept separate. I wanted to make sure that uh, we had a space, uh, a bookish space for people to both engage with fiction and with poetry and understand that, you know, in a literary world, the world of letters and it's stories and narration, yes. exactly, you can definitely weave in poetry and uh, fiction together. It all works within the same universe. Mm. And I actually thought it made for a very refreshing change of pace when you're reading uh, a kind of choose your own adventure narrative where you're going back and forth between stories. It's nice to have that break and go into a more musical, uh, well, you know, for lack of a better word, <laughs> um, musical or uh, a different space. Yeah. Uh, and I think it worked out really well that each path has both fiction and poetry. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all, it's all a big mix, which... Um, our program is as well. So. Yeah. Good. Obviously, there's going to be a new one next year. What are you hoping that one looks like? Well, I mean, so up until now, all the anthologies have just been, it's just been a normal anthology. Um, and I've noticed that they tend to, well, <laughs> I mean, this is like to our own, they tend to improve as they <laughs> move on in the sense that last year's anthology was At really the, in beautiful. In the sense that this one is the best one yet. Of course, <laughs> yes, by all of them, yes. But um, for example, last year's volume, I mean, uh, I think it's great. I mean, I think it's beautiful. The cover is gorgeous. Um, the editor-in-chief, Sonali, uh, she was super great. I talked with her a lot before uh, starting this project, asking for her advice on things. Um, so she's definitely, you know, I'm definitely building on the work that other people have done before us. And uh, with this year, what I, I wanted to bring to the table, I think we all wanted to bring to it, was a chance to grow the project into something that could exhibit everybody's creative abilities beyond just the written word. So for example, that's why we have a podcast right now. Um, that's what I you're listening to. Whoa, Exa exactly. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> um, it's a chance for you our listener to and our reader to listen to our voices and to get to know our minds and you know the places these stories come from because uh, they're not written out of like thin air <laughs> they're definitely you know they come from a place that's very special to all of us so it's a chance for everybody to kind of get a an insider look inside what makes us tick um, we have a website now as well which we didn't have before um, and it's really going to be a chance for people to just get to know our project outside of just you know the university um, most importantly of all, I think I really wanted to, uh, I really wanted to make this project as professional and as interesting as 
we could make it because I think everybody in this program and every contributor and every person is in our staff is a brilliant person. And I wanted to really give them a chance to just exhibit their skills to the high and to really bring themselves up to their highest potential. Sometimes that means saying no to a lot of things, unfortunately. Uh, so that was kind of something that I had to learn along uh, the way. Uh, there was nobody that I said yes to, like for ev everything, not even Meryl <laughs> and not even mm -hmm. myself. So um, part of being leading a project that is so different from the past is that you have to take a few risks. Um, and I think at least with this volume, I'm, I, I mean, I couldn't be happier with how it turned out. I think it's just it's exactly what we wanted. Yeah. And I think um, for next year, um, for that team, I think whatever choices they make, they now have a website that is on and running that they can use that wasn't there before. They have um, a podcast to listen to and, and the example of that format. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just, just another season. Yeah, I yeah, mean, they could. I think it's a great incentive to, to get more, uh, to think out of the box and to think like, what else can I do just with an anthology? Just pat on the back here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can. Do. Um, <laughs> Worked very hard on this. Yeah, so I think, Definitely for next year. Um, I hope I hope they do something weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's kind of the joy of it, right? It's not really our job, so we can get kind of uh, experimental with it. So I would hope. I mean, as, just to reiterate what Meryl said, I would hope that they, whoever comes after us, feels empowered to go even further with this, you know, um, and looks at their team and at themselves and see what strengths they can bring to the project and just you know bring it out, see what happens. Well, the cool thing about working on a uh, on a series in a way and just be responsible for one iteration of that series is that you have a lot to work with in the past, but that you also can build something for the future. Of course, we have done a lot of we've built a lot of blocks that they can use to create something fresh yeah, and definitely. new next year as well. Yeah. Coming back to what we have lying in front of us right now, the <laughs> book that we published, though. So, you have both written for the book. How is it uh, working with your own pieces in a book that you have to manage yourself as well? Oh, it was awful. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I, just, well, I just left my story to the end every time because I, <laughs> I, um, I tried not to get involved in the editing process until the last week, which was you know, editor-in-chief week in the sense that all the poetry and fiction editors have uh, we have two per round. Well, sorry, we have two rounds per writer. So if you submit a story to our um, to our anthology, you get assigned two different uh, fiction editors. And you know, if you're doing poetry, you get assigned two different poetry editors. And so you have two weeks where you know a person reads through the story, gives you feedback. You have time to fix it. Goes on to the next person, and then it finally gets to me. Um, so of course, I mean, I submitted my story and I got feedback from two different people, which was wonderful and great. Um, but because I had to read through everybody else's story and make sure everything was good. And that's when I got like my vendor <laughs> snatch idea. I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. And then my own story, I was like, ah, I'll just figure it out later. <laughs> so it got to the point where um, I actually think I sort of um, left it towards the end, which I feel I feel really bad about because in the end where I actually did pick it up and I was like, okay, fine, like I have to care, like I have to think about my own work now. Uh, and stop worrying about everybody else's. Um, you know, when I actually did that, it was such a fun experience because um, it was edited by two people whose uh, feedback I value a lot. So it was really nice to have that perspective on a story 
um, that I wasn't involved in. Well, you that's know. the cool part about being editor-in-chief. You can kind of decide who edits your pieces as well. So. Well, we sort <laughs> of, we uh, with that process, we try to match people who would um, not, not write something similar, but someone who would appreciate the kind of work you're doing and want to give it its full uh, due. So, for example, if, like, I, if I hate experimental fiction, if I'm like, oh my god, I, I can't read this, I, I you know, I you probably wouldn't have read Angela's piece for it. No, <laughs> no, because I think Angela's piece is actually quite. Uh, it's amazing. It's I amazing, it. and actually, it's quite uh, approachable. But you know, something like mm-hmm. Borgesian, you know, I, if there's an editor that's like, I just like, you know, romance or realistic fiction or something like that, then you know, maybe not the best fit, right. because you might argue about stuff that in the end is not really uh, consequential because you're just writing in a style that somebody else is just you know it's not their thing um so we wanted to match up people who would have that nice flow i think we did it mm-hmm. yeah. for mo- nobody complained so <laughs> it was kind of like a, a matching process it took us a while i remember we were here in my common it, room and it like, took us hours yeah to work that out yeah. yeah every every single like match that we did every like path and story what, what was good as well is that before you start the project when you get, got all the editors together you asked them okay what kind of stuff do you actually like reading mm-hmm. which even if you don't know your editors that well at that point, mm-hmm. because you were you just started a project, right? You'd still get a sense of what kind of stuff they like reading. So that does give you that advantage, I, I Yeah, suppose. definitely. Yeah. Um, I think for myself, um, like handing in my story and working on my story um, work pretty similar to everyone else. Mm. As in, um, yeah, submitted it. I had two editors go over it. Um, then Maglia's um, editor-in-chief go over it as well. Um, and I mean, I didn't have that responsibility as the editor-in-chief of, of reading all of it and editing all of it um, as well. So I think my experience with that is probably pretty similar. But then when it comes to, like you have the manuscript and you're um, like looking at when when Elspeth started typesetting it, because um, I, I did the coordinates in the book, I like figured out what went on what page and da da da. Um, to receive the manuscript and see your own work in it is obviously very exciting. Oh my um, god, I thought I was gonna cry. Yeah, <laughs> we, we got the we got the proof uh, a few weeks ago, maybe mm. two weeks ago, not even that long, and we saw it in person and we just like we were so excited because it felt like a real book. We you actually know? did like, something. All our work is not in vain. Yeah, we, it's we worked towards something and now it's physically in our hands. Yeah, well, mostly and you have physical proof too. Mostly because, I mean, as a writer, all the work I've ever done is on Microsoft Word. <laughs> I've never yeah. seen, you know, like a like a physical manifestation of the hours that you spend working on something. So that, that's really satisfying and gratifying. And um, I mean, I was just really proud of the way it turned mm-hmm. out. Yeah, the three of us um, were sitting in a pub with our proof copy. I mean, you apparently did. we're always in a pub. <laughs> um, so the we three were of us, that includes the copyright. Um, or, or the four of us, I guess. Oh, then the we were with Elspeth. Oh, right, okay. As well. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, were, we, we just got the proof and we're like, looking through it. Obviously, we had to mm. look for mistakes, but initially we were just sitting there holding the book and just like passing it around. And it's like, oh, no, I want to hold it again. Yeah, I want to like, hold it again. No, it was, we had no, our, give, me, give me one more minute. It was, it, we, had our, like, yeah. we had our little baby and we all had shared custody. Like it, was ba- <laughs> it was literally like it was a baby. It was like, can I hold it now? Okay, wait, can I hold it? Like, it was just <laughs> passing it around. It was Sending so pictures funny. to our parents. Yeah. <laughs> And some of them, I mean, since we all are from different places, they were not awake. So we're waiting for our parents to answer and being like, oh, my God, why are they answering? Like, we're ready. My my parents were awake. They just didn't answer for like an hour. (laughs) 
guess it's they have lives. Weird. They have passing to do, along guess, a baby so. in a pub, though. I just it's a very <laughs> weird image. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I yeah. Well, yeah. So go to go back to your point earlier when we um, had our first meeting editorial. I I mean, we wrote up a, a little form asking our editors, you know, what kind of stuff they like to read. Mm. Um, most uh, honestly, most of them said. I'll read whatever, mm-hmm. but there but are some people that. That's also kind of what an editor should be able to do too. Yeah, of course. But you know, if like you even though I personally wouldn't enjoy romantic fiction as much, I, you can still kind of tell whether something works or not just in terms of storytelling. Sure, that's that's very fair. Um, I think going into it, it's it's good to remember that we are all also postgrad students, mm. so we had other things to do at that this time. True. So I figured, you know, I'll match people to stories or poems that they find maybe easier to deep to dive into um, so that this whole process doesn't feel like a slog. And I think it, w- it worked pretty well because I think at least the editors that I talked to said, oh, that went by really quickly. Like, my job is done. I'm like, great. <laughs> good. <laughs> on, to the ne- on to the next one. Oh, great work. <laughs> Hooray. And now we yeah. actually have the physical copy here in front of us and we can all be all, glo- all gloat about it and be happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it feels really good. It feels really good to have it here. And then it's going to be in bookstores and uh, the next couple of weeks. And that'll be, I guess that'll mm, be like the real opportunity test. Another opportunity for more photos. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're going to do a... We're just <laughs> on a constant photo shoot. Exactly. We're going to do a tour of each bookstore Instagram and just take a photo with it. Instagram is just filled with this book. It's exactly. People have to know about it, of course. Mm. Yes. Talking about the contents of the book, both mm-hmm. of you, like I said, wrote a piece for the book. Uh, it's published in the book. And I actually want to dive into that and talk with each of one of you about your piece. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's a good idea for us to listen to John Reed read both of your <laughs> stories. <laughs> hey, this this pun has not been made before. <laughs> it's my favorite joke to make. But honestly, John Reed should just make a should just make audio books because of his name. Yeah, it's like reading. Well, Rainbow. and his voice. His voice is just velvety smooth and awesome. Just and yeah, Scottish. John Reads. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. But then with his spelling of the name. Okay. Anyway, enough <laughs> about that. <laughs> Let's dive into the stories and uh, I'll see you on the other side. Let's do it. Athenaeum by Magali Roman. There is a room where a man sits enclosed in darkness. The room is windowless and stale, closed off from the world with a door that can only be opened by a visitor. The door is labelled with two names, neither of which are his. In truth, the man has no name. He only has a story. Occasionally, a visitor will open the door, and when this happens, the man begins to speak. He delivers his testimony in layers, speaking first of a city, then a neighbourhood, then a family, and finally, a man. His tale spans a hundred years, yet it is told in just a few hours. It is important to divide the story into chapters, because you never know when a visitor might grow tired and decide to close the door. The man speaks because he knows that speaking will keep the door open, and the longer the door stays open, the stronger he becomes. The man cannot see outside the room, but he can look upon the faces of his visitors. He collects their eyes. They change all the time. Sometimes they are young, sometimes they are old, and sometimes he catches only a glimpse before the visitor slams the door shut and plunges him back into darkness. 
he thinks about these eyes in the dark. He holds on to their memory, on the days when visits are scarce and the door opens so rarely that he grows weak and hungry. If nobody opened the door, the man would not die, but he would become weak and unable to speak and for him that is worse than dying. It is hard to guess how long a visitor will stay. They are unpredictable creatures. Some of them cheer, chuckle or gasp at crucial moments in the tale. Some visitors even linger in the doorway, sighing in content bliss for hours on end, wasting away while the man, in turn, grows stronger. These are the best times. There are times when the door stays open for years and visitors overcrowd the doorway, elbowing each other to listen in. Other times they shout, jeer or slam the door in anger. On some occasions a visitor listens, only to lock the door shut and prevent other visitors from coming in. When this happens, the door can stay locked for years. These are the worst times. Some visitors return, eager to hear the man's tale once more, but by then the story has changed in their eyes and the man cannot remember the details that so enraptured them. When this happens, some visitors grow angry and shut the door, never to return. Others find that they like the changes because they themselves have changed. The man knows nothing of the outside world because the room is his entire world. He spends his days inside its paper-thin walls, waiting for the door to open. He does not eat and he does not sleep, though perhaps it could be said that he dreams. His story, after all, must come from somewhere. It is unclear how old he is or how long the room has existed. He only knows that he himself has always been there and thus it follows that the room must have always been there too. What the man does not know is that he is not alone. He is, in fact, one of many like him, hundreds of thousands of men in rooms much like his. Lined up side by side, stacked in formation like cells on a prison block, the rooms call to visitors, beckoning them to open their doors. A man can be found behind each of them, waiting. Like him, they receive visitors. Like him, they ramble on, endlessly, desperately, until someone props open the door, until somebody listens, until somebody stays. Hi. Hello. Yeah, Mira's gone. She we is. send her on pee break. Rip. <laughs> She'll not, She's she, actually still in the She won't room. come back. Anyway, let's let's dive into your story. <laughs> Honestly, when we when we had to, to do the reading with with John, uh, we didn't even know how to pronounce the title. So we I had didn't to even know how to up. pronounce the title. <laughs> it was so <laughs> it was terrible actually because I didn't know what to call this for the longest time. I thought that the best title would be just untitled, but I actually hate when things are called oh, yeah. untitled. Especially when you're walking in a museum and then you see all these really amazing pieces and yeah. they're called untitled one, untitled two. Yeah, and it's just like a strip of like green paint and you're like, okay, but... I, I can, can see why this one is entitled of my story. Yeah, like, can you give me a clue? So um, I wanted to come up with a title for this and, you know, this story is about a book, uh, first and foremost. So, you know, it sort of mimics a view of going into a room that feels 
probably like a maybe a medieval prison cell of sorts. Um, and there's a man behind the door. And as soon as you open the door, the man starts speaking. So that's really meant to be, I mean, at the risk of over explaining the full thing, but just in case you didn't get it, <laughs> the man uh, starts telling a story. He's uh, implied to be a narrator and the door of the room is implied to be a book cover. So the idea is that you're actually just reading a book and the visitor that's spoken of is so a reader. So basically being in a bookstore, a library is like being in a prison? Basically, I mean, that's something you could take from it. You know, you might, you know, you might play around with the idea that the narrator is really this imprisoned being that's inside of a book who is essentially, you know, lying <laughs> in wait uh, to entertain you at all hours of the day, depending on when you feel like opening a book. Um, it's kind of a, an interesting th way to think about your narrator, but I, I think it actually encapsulates the way that I've progressed in learning about fiction in this year, because mm. before this program, I actually hated the question uh, of whether the narrator in a book was unreliable or not. Oh, I, yeah. I hate that question. I still, I still kind of do, because I think, you know, a book is fiction, so it should be unreliable. It, that, that's not something that interests me. But, um, you know, the more I've been experimenting with my fiction this year, I've found that it's actually quite interesting to think about who is telling the story rather than what's happening inside of it. So this was really my attempt to, you know, give that voice uh, more of a spotlight. And it is a bit, you know, sad and a little scary at times, but it's also quite, uh, it, you could say that it's also quite sinister for the reader as well, because they spend time listening to this man um, and some people stay there for ages, you know, kind of wasting they away. They only read their, uh, the same book again and again. Well, mostly like I just thought of the people, especially me when I was young, who would find a book and be like, oh my God, this is like so amazing. It's so interesting. Or they're very slow readers. Yeah, or they're very slow readers. But, um, you know, people who are just like really deeply connect with the story and just like dive really deep into that world and you just read through dinner or you read through a party or you just, you just keep reading until you get to the end because it's the most fascinating thing you've ever read. Um, and I think we've all been that kind of reader and that's the kind of reader that a narrator would probably like thrive off of, you know? Um, and the kind of reader an author would love to have. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it's the idea of these two forces, the reader and the narrator kind of fighting for dominance over each other, which is how it feels sometimes to write a book. <laughs> you know, I don't know who to write for anymore. <laughs> but uh, when it comes to your story, the the narrators, so the the guys who are imprisoned, I suppose, in these blocks, like they're not always telling the same story the same way. No, well, um, that is the case with a book. Right. So uh, each room is meant to be a different book. So mm -hmm. the narrator is, you know, just telling the book uh, the story that his own book is saying. So. Uh, in the end, where you sort of pan out yeah. and uh, see like all of the cells up, kind of like a prison block, mm -hmm. it's really meant to just um, be an image of a library of books sort of stacked one after the other, um, you know, with almost like little cells uh, waiting to be, you know, discovered by a reader. So yeah, I mean, they all have different stories because every book is different mm -hmm. and every story is different, but the narrator himself does say the same story over and over again. I was wondering, of, of course, you have different narrators when it comes to stories. What if your narrator is the first is the first talking the first person perspective in present tense? How what would that cell look like? Oh, I, <laughs> what would the cell? I think um, I think when I was thinking of well, when I first had the idea for this, I was 
Oh, this is gonna sound so pretentious, but my dad's gonna love it. Um, <laughs> I was reading. <laughs> no, not because my dad's pretentious, but <laughs> no, because I, let me explain myself. So I was reading um, Italo Calvino's uh, Invisible Cities, and uh, that book deals, and that's that's my dad's basically favorite book. So that's really? why my dad's gonna love it, not because it's pretentious, but. Um, he uh, so Calvino writes that book from you know basically like it talks about narration um, and how you tell the story and how uh, the story changes uh, depending on who's saying it and what they're describing. Mm-hmm. So essentially, uh, I, I was literally like, <laughs> I was literally like listening to uh, people talk about this book in class. And then I got an idea for this story and I started writing it down and I must have looked like I had like a great idea about like my essay or something because I was just <laughs> like n- writing notes the entire time. But it was actually about my own story. But originally it was meant that's to the be right, the best kind of way to. Yeah, <laughs> it's to inspiration class. strikes. Um, it was originally meant to be a man in a well, you know, almost like as an allusion to Murakami or something. Cause that's a, a symbol that he always has, you know, like a, some dude just waiting for a, like inside a well or deep below somewhere trying to get out. Um, but then I figured, you know, it would actually be better if it was a cell or a room of some kind, not necessarily a cell. And when I thought about um, what that place would look like, I just figured, I, I just pictured darkness and maybe some like stone walls or something, but a place that was quite decrepit, um, sort of like no distractions, right? Like no TV, <laughs> no, not even a chair, nothing, nothing. Uh, because to me, prison cells are, not that I've ever been in prison, <laughs> but in my <laughs> idea of a prison cell, is a place where you, you yeah. yeah, it's a place where you kind of like, uh, you can't do anything but think, right? Like that's kind of why a prison is such a crazy punishment is that you're really left alone with your thoughts and right. that can kind of drive you crazy. Um, you're isolated from the world. So it's it's a great place to think of a story or if anything, to keep telling yourself a story to remind yourself of who you are and what you're doing and you know, remind yourself that you do have a story. And you know, I've said this before <laughs> to other people and it feels so bad to say this, but that's sometimes how I feel writing is. I love writing, of course, it's something that I that fulfills me, every part of me but it can at times feel like a prison where you are that sort of person who is just sitting down trying to get the story out. You're almost like possessed by your imagination Mm -hmm. and it strikes whenever it fancies. And um, you're almost kind of stuck in this uh, prison of your mind until you can get out the story that you want to write. And it's never perfect and it's never like good enough, but you know, you need to reach that place of like isolation and quietness inside of yourself. It's not, it, it can be kind of like a prison in a sense, but I didn't call it a prison in the story because it's just a room. Mm-hmm. So it's an isolated room. It's a place where you are by yourself. You don't have anything else, but there's no reason it couldn't be a pleasant yeah, thing. Well you know, a place of meditation. We just prisons now with different, call them different names. And be like, no, it's not, it's not a prison. Just, yeah, exactly. just in a room by yourself. Exactly. It's just a dorm room, you know, it's <laughs> not a, it's not a prison, but, um, you know, you do need to access that little corner of your mind and really focus on it in order to, tell the kind of story that people are going to open the door to listen to. Right. And then the doors are painted in these all these amazing colors. And you'll be like, oh, that's the cover. I want to exactly. read that one. Yeah, exactly. So it, each door has uh, the name of someone, yeah. which isn't the narrator or the, the person. It's mm-hmm. actually the author who wrote the book. You know, right. of course, you have the title in the book. Um, and 
I don't know if this is still in the last version because I had a, a couple of versions flying around. Um, but in one version, you know, all the doors were painted different colors as to as if to right. really allude to you like these are covers and sometimes they change because they have different editions. I think in the end, I kind of scrapped that idea because I didn't really want to be too obvious about it. And and it, it should it was kind of a like the tone of the the piece is pretty dark. So yeah, I, I think. It's funny because I'm not a very dark person myself, I don't think, but uh, the sort of fiction that I write does tend to veer in that direction. I think it's because I'm Argentinian, we can't really help it. <laughs> Everything has to be, uh, I think, a little more than you expect. There has to be something below the surface. I really hate that line of thought that you get in like elementary school or high school where, you know, a, a, like an English student is frustrated at his English teacher because they don't get like what this book is saying and they say something like oh sometimes like you know the the dress is just blue because it's blue you know it's like not a big deal like there's not a symbolism behind everything but I actually think that there is symbolism behind absolutely everything um, and that every story that I write and hopefully the ones I love the most have those little hidden clues that um, tell you more about what's beneath the surface of the story. I mean, it's enough story to read and like love and you know be entertained by, but if you dig a little deeper, you find even more things. But of course, there's also there's some things when you want to uh, create a deeper layer to your story, some things you can do consciously. And then there's also a lot of stuff you do subconsciously. Yeah, I think that's even that's even more fun. I love like turning in stories to a workshop and people think being like, oh, I thought this was about, you know, like vanity or I thought this was about yeah. this. I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. I think it's also, you know, maybe subconsciously manifested itself in the creation of this book, too, because this book also has under layers and um, little secret paths that you can follow to make a bigger story. I think um, that's because I mean, that's probably because I myself love that sort of uh, interactive dynamic approach to a book where mm -hmm. you're like constantly reading it and thinking okay this is what you're telling me but like what are you really trying to say, say yeah. um, well that's that's also a good approach to have when you actually start writing though instead of just randomly typing away at, at the computer it's very good idea to just stop and think by yourself what do i really want to say with my story yeah i mean i think also whatever you're trying to say comes out as you're writing the story so i usually prefer to just I have an idea in my head. I, I'm usually plot-based. Um, this is one of the few stories that I write that has not had a really plot. <laughs> but I sit down, I know what I want to happen. Once I, I write it out, I realize, oh, I'm actually writing about, you know, uh, a, a boy with like father issues or, um, you know. Uh, themes, yeah. yeah, love that theme. <laughs> <laughs> or I don't know, like uh, democracy in peril or, or something, something bigger that I probably, if I sat there and I thought like, okay, I'm going to write about, you know, like a country uh, falling falling apart and democracy is like, you know, in peril. I probably would have get too choked up or too like, oh my God, how do I do that mm -hmm. to write out the story? Right. But if I just start out with a story and I'm like, okay, well, it's a journalist interviewing a president. Let's see what happens. Um, you know, that, that major theme just kind of comes out. So that's that's how I do it. But everybody has their own way of writing too. That's quite a good way to, st to write a story anyway. Thanks for dropping by, Magali. Thanks, and, Buster. Uh, I love one. this. Great conversation. Yay. <laughs> and uh, we'll probably hear from you again. I hope so. <laughs> but first, we have to move on to Meryl's part. Because she also wrote a story. Whoa! What? <laughs> what I did had, she? I had no idea. <laughs> Meryl! When did that happen? What? Where'd she go? <laughs> Come be here. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> <laughs>
From the Ceiling by M. E. Gerritsen. Max often wondered what it would be like to live on the ceiling. He thought about it before going to sleep, as his mum read to him from the rainbow fish, and he thought about it in the few minutes between his one mum nudging him awake and the other saying that now he really, really had to get up or he'd be late for school again. The idea of escaping the conventional realm of his bedroom floor and rising into the air and landing with both feet on the ceiling seemed to him a much greater adventure than whatever mischief his classmates got up to. But then, they never invited him anyway. That Friday morning, Max was ill. His mum, Julie, gave him a stern look and asked him if it was a real sickness or one of his pretend ones. And then she felt his forehead and took his temperature. On the high side, but only a little. She consulted with his mum, Tabitha, who was running around gathering keys, phone and packed lunch, rushing to get to work before the motorways were jam-packed. She built bridges for an engineering company, and Max thought that was the most impressive thing anyone could do. They observed him as he lay there, squeezing his plush dolphin in fear that he would be sent to school, but they allowed him to stay home, and he squeezed a little less. His mum brought him honeyed tea and opened one of his curtains to let in some daylight, but not too much so he could still sleep if he wanted to. A cold winter's light crept in. Max didn't want to sleep, but he didn't want to get up and lie on the couch and watch daytime TV either. He decided today would be the perfect day for his trip to the ceiling. The ascent was easy. It gave him the same pleasant feeling in his stomach that he got whenever his mum drove over a high bump without slowing down. When he landed, he found the ceiling to be quite warm and he remembered his mum telling him how heat likes to find a high spot. He was in a landing position, arms stretched outwards for balance, when his shirt tails fell over his head and the hem of his pyjama pants dropped to his knees. Max stood up straight and tucked in his shirt, but found there was no solution for the pants. They kept falling up. He decided to let them and looked around. He was standing in the middle of his ceiling near the light, a blue shade with Nemo fish on it, swimming upside down. He walked towards it, carefully, like a crane on thin ice. A pleasant warmth radiated from the lamp, as well as a soft buzzing sound that he only heard now that he was close to it. A spider web had gathered with a canopy attached to the ceiling. Max chose this as a good spot to observe his surroundings and sat down. His furniture hung like bats in a cave. The foreignness of their new position was overwhelming at first, but did not take long to get used to. Above him, in a bed that seemed too big, a boy of about seven years old was glued to the mattress, holding a plush dolphin as big as himself. Max waved at him, but Floor Max didn't seem to be aware of sealing Max's presence and kept staring down with a dreamy expression. There was a chair at the foot of the bed from which a collection of plush marine creatures looked down. A fluffy white seal with particular curiosity. In the centre of the room, a steam train dangled from its tracks 
as odd-sized clay animals held onto the carpet for dear life. Max sat there for a while, enjoying his new perspective. He had always thought the ceiling to be a plain white, but now that he was on it, he noticed it was actually closer to eggshell. Furniture he had always thought of as being upright made just as much sense hanging upside down. Intrigued to discover more, Max began to explore further. He had never realised how high their ceilings were until he found himself stretching for the door head and reaching high and jumping before he could pull himself up and climb through the door frame. With a thump, he landed on the other side in the long and narrow first floor hallway. To his left and right, the guest room and his mum's study respectively, he found the doors closed. Unable to open them from his high spot, he kept walking. The stairwell on his right was alarmingly high, a gaping cavity of ground floor. Then came the door leading to his mother's bedroom, closed too, but the bathroom door in front of him was open. The ventilation fan hummed on his left and the windows were still foggy from his mum's shower and the whole room smelled like her arnica shower oil. Max grinned at seeing the toilet so high up and wondered if he could still hit his mark, but he resisted the urge to try and instead stood looking into the shower cabin for a while. The top of the shower head was the wet kind of dusty, one of those places that was often forgotten during the weekly cleaning. Max would have wiped it off now had he been able to reach it. The shower head, he decided, would have to remain in limbo. A hanging plant in a cane basket rose from the ceiling in the corner, below the laundry basket, and from Max's perspective, it looked like a flame, or one of those nymphs in a storybook with twigs for hair. He hauled it in to check if it had recently been watered, feeling like a deckhand on a pirate ship, except the content of this bucket was dry. Max made a mental note to tell his mum. He sat down near the ventilation fan. Its purring was oddly calming, like the cat they might have owned if Max hadn't been allergic. He lay down. Maybe he would take a nap. The bathroom was nice and warm, and the smell of arnica made him feel safe. Zoom, said the fan. Then he heard the soft footsteps of his mum in her house slippers on the wooden stairs, and he sat up and peeked out the bathroom door. She looked into his bedroom, found Floor Max fast asleep, and retreated to her study, coffee cup in hand. She left the door open, and sealing Max quietly followed her in. She sat down behind her book-covered desk. She was translating another one Max knew, but from up high all words looked the same to him. He sat down right above her to watch her work. He liked the idea of life continuing with him so far away from it, like being in the back seat of his mum's car and looking out the window and not needing to do anything. The smell of arnica had followed them in. Max could only hope the coffee in its mug would abide by the laws of gravity and remembered that time when he was three years old and had knocked his mum's coffee cup off the table and was taken to the hospital with second-degree burns. 
He hadn't seen her drink coffee for some time after that. Now coffee was back, but under constant supervision whenever Max was near. The phone rang. She let it do so for a while before picking up, as was her habit. Hello? The muffled voice on the other side didn't carry to the ceiling. Yes, he is at home. I called earlier. The voice muffled on. No, he's ill. I told your secretary. Both ceiling Max and floor Max shifted uncomfortably. What makes you say that? Her tone changed. He's never mentioned that to us. The muffling continued for a while. A sound not unlike the buzzing of the lamp or the purring of the bathroom fan, but with none of their charm. I don't think it's for you to decide what he should be embarrassed by or not. There was a sharpness to her voice that pulled Max back into reality, and a heaviness like an anvil shackled to his stomach dragged him down. He retreated to his bedroom, so that when he fell he would land in his bed and not on the floor, and once there he let reality take him. The descent was like the landing of an airplane or falling in a dream, fast and hard hitting upon touchdown. He wished he could have stayed on the ceiling. He wished everyone would live on the ceiling, where everything was different and that was just the way it was, but the ceiling couldn't shield him. He left the comfort of his bed and his imagination and made way to his mum's study where she sat frowning, still holding the phone. She smiled when she saw him enter. Hi, Gup. How are you feeling? He hugged her in silence, but she seemed to understand. And we're back. We're back. Hi. Hello. From the ceiling. Yes, that's my story. That's your story. It wasn't originally called that. No. Um, yeah, you just reminded me of the original title, but I kind of forgot it. Uh, something. Was it a good thing I reminded you of it? Well, kind of brought me back to <laughs> why I didn't like it. Um, it was something to do with the color of the ceiling being different than you would initially think being on the ground. Right. Because my story deals a lot with perspectives. Yes. So how, how did you come up with this one? How I came up with it, it was actually kind of my own personal experience. Whenever, when I was a kid, I very often like lay on my bed and I was like, I wonder what it would be like to actually be on the ceiling instead of the floor. I'd be like, all right, so the windows would be a little higher because we, ha we have quite high ceilings um, in my house where I grew up. And yeah, I just imagine what it would be like, what all my furniture would look like if it was hanging upside down. Um, and it's just something that once every so often I remember. It's like, oh, that's funny. I should write something about that. No, I think this is one of those things where you read the story and you're like, ah, I remember having done that myself, but it's yeah. not one of those things you really remember from your childhood, right? But it's kind of like this, it's sort of like epiphany, like yeah. moment where you're like, well, but I have experienced that too, yeah, but I, yeah. I totally forgot all about it. Well, I think that's, I think that's true for a lot of childhood experiences because right. you don't really register them that much exactly. until you're confronted with them again. Um, this is just a particular one that stuck with me because I thought, I always thought it was interesting. Um, 
But yeah, I've, I've talked to other people about it and they were like, oh yeah, I did that <laughs> as a kid. So I think that, yeah, it's funny. Mostly when I was just lying with my head. Uh, hanging like hanging off the bed. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the right way to experience that. Yeah. And then all the blood would just flow to your head and then you would get <laughs> the weird ideas. And you would feel ideas. a little sick, yes. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah, and I think it was an interesting um, metaphor as well to talk about different perspectives. Right. Um, because, of course, if you're on the ceiling, your you whole world is upside down. Um, yeah, and because and you just heard the story. Um, Max is kind of struggling with that, with, like, conventional perspectives that he doesn't really feel like he and his family fit into. Mm. Um, so he escapes to the ceiling to get away from that. Um, but eventually he finds out that that is not how you deal with problems. You can't run away from them. Um what? What? You can't? <laughs> you can't. But I've no. been escaping my entire life. <laughs> well, Wester, it's time to come up the ceiling. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was um, kind of the idea and the inspiration behind the story. And your story is uh, fitted within the escapism track, I reckon. Yes. Yes. Because he escapes exactly. to the ceiling. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and then it's escapism was the, the theme that... Um, we fit it into initially, and then we put it in the path with all the, the path that's actually called um, Museum of Childhood, after oh, yeah. one of Ellie Jackson's poems, mm. and it's all um, stories and poems that deal with childhood and the experience of childhood. Right. And nostalgia, I suppose. And nostalgia is in right. it too, yeah. Does this, uh, does this story neatly fit into other works you've been writing? Um, I'm not sure. Um, maybe I like to I like surrealism and um, I kind of like exploring the non-reality side of things mm. um, I guess I guess you could call it magic realism although I'm not sure if I'm actually if I actually fit into that genre but it, it has elements of it I think yeah um, I've, I've yeah I've written a few stories like this uh, what I'm working on right now is very different um, it's definitely a type of writing that I like to explore, but I wouldn't say it's all I do. Mm. Super diverse. Yes, I am. <laughs> so what kind of writing would you normally write? Um, what are the other kinds of writing you, uh, you dabble so, in? So um, while, while I've been here, I've written, well, I think, I think nostalgia is definitely actually as a theme, a big, a big part of my writing. Um, um, nostalgia, melancholy. Mm. Um, I think the uh, first three stories that I wrote while I was here definitely dealt with that. They were kind of about cities, the cities that I've lived in, mm -hmm. um, and how all of them are kind of losing a bit of their authenticity in a way. Um, and the one that I started with was Venice, which I think is a prime example of that. Right. Um, so they're all kind of about... about the, the only people living in Venice is tourists. Yes. The actual locals um, have left. Yeah. So I guess like that's... Those three are definitely about a loss of innocence of a city, but also the loss of innocence... Well, okay. innocence is maybe not the right term for a city, yeah. but definitely the loss of innocence of the people living in that city and coming to terms with what their city has become. Oh yeah, you mentioned authenticity before and I think that goes very well. That, yeah. that fits the, story, the, the cities anyway. Yeah, and then um, right now I'm working on a novel actually. Mm. Um, and it's about an artist um, in New York in 1950. And she is trying to become successful 
but she is a woman and it's very difficult for women in that time mm. to be successful in a world that's very dominated by men. Um, so that's actually much more realistic, although the style of it is very, um, I kind of try to echo the style of the, the art movement of that time, which is the oh, abstract cool. expressionism. So I'm kind of being Jackson Pollock with, <laughs> with words <laughs> in okay. a way. Um, so how would you change where your your prose? Um, to, well, to I think like that. the um, the thing with that story is um, the art movement, the abstract expressionism. It's very action based, and it's like it's all big and and like the the paintings are made by using your whole body to make art. So um, what I'm trying to do with my writing is make it as action-packed as the art of that time so it's very expressionist cool but that's a whole different thing from this story obviously yeah. from the one that's published in here yeah uh, one of the things uh we've we've done this year in the program was also to look back on all the stuff you've done before done before yeah. and then sort of realize okay but are there actually common themes or or maybe uh motifs or mm -hmm. whatever that keep popping up into your stories that you might not even have realized yet yeah was this the case with you as well or or did you already realize well i definitely i think i like to explore like the non-conventional okay. um anything that's non-conventional yeah um i yeah i think i i like to tell stories that i think have not been told often enough before so which ties in with the non-conventional um so uh with Max's story, um, I mean, he has two moms. His moms are gay. And that is why he escapes to the ceiling. Right. Because he's being bullied at school because mm -hmm. of that. Um, which is, I think, I mean, especially within children's literature, I think it's coming now. It hasn't been done it very often not, yet no, it's, that it's there's gay, gay parents in it. Yeah. So, um, still. There's that, and then the story that I'm writing now, it's obviously about the women of this art movement that haven't been very well represented either. Mm -hmm. um, with the cities, it's trying to show a side of a city that's going away um, so that you don't necessarily see anymore when you're in the city mm -hmm. because it's been taken over by, well, tourists very often. Like, um, it's like it's all becoming one big well tourist circus actually if you're if you're talking about yeah. venice um so Was i one think of the I cities you explored amsterdam by any yes chance? definitely okay, well, because that's the same, that's thing the same thing that things happening there. exactly happening honestly there. it feels like you leave the central station and and you're just swamped you by just tourists. bought yourself a, a ticket to an amusement park to, yeah. to a zoo yeah. yeah um so i think looking at it that way i think all my stories definitely there is a purpose to why you're writing there is a purpose yes i'm trying to tell I'm trying to show something. It's not just what you're trying to say. I'm trying to, say, to represent something. Exactly. Yes. You're tr the, the why you're telling the story is, is, is yeah. very prevalent. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm very much looking forward to reading and hearing more about your, uh, yes, your well, writing career. I hope I get to talk about it more. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. All right. Thank you. Cheers. The From Arthur Seat podcast was produced by me, Wester Wagener, with the help of Megali Roman and Miro de Beer for 2019's From Arthur Seat anthology. 
Story excerpts were read by John Reed. Special thanks to Jack Taylor. From RFC 2019 is launching on the 8th of May. You can visit us at fromrfc.com. Thank you for listening.